This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is away, but the rest of the Fight Back team is here, and we are ready for an action-packed show. And we will get to the Green Belt new housing controversy at the bottom of the hour. But as you just heard there in Zoomer Radio News with Angus Gillespie, we got some good news. Not only did Premier Ford say that he will rescind Bill 28, the controversial legislation imposed on the education workers. But now, Laura Walton of CUPE, who has been speaking on behalf of the 55,000 education workers, says they will call off the strike so they can get back to bargaining. That is the absolute best news that we have heard uh, since the situation was ramping up. So good news. Both sides have given in. They're going to go back to bargaining. And of course, we want to hear what you have to say about all of that. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's bring in our Zoomer squad. Uh, They weigh in on issues important to the Zoomer demographic of 45 and older every Monday at this time. David Kravitz is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Policy and Chief Operating Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hello, squad. Hi, Hi, everybody. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. We have literally just gotten that breaking news that uh, CUPE is going to give up their strike as of tomorrow. Doug Ford earlier said that he would rescind Bill 28. So, David, uh, this is a good news moment here. It's a very good news moment. Um, I have a uh, personal interest in it. I guess I have a grandson who's... uh, who's home uh, from school, and uh, his mother, my daughter, is a teacher who's under some bizarre rule, has to go into the school building to teach uh, on Zoom, believe it or not. Ah. Uh, who knows why? I mean, don't get me started on the, uh, the TDSB and its Byzantine rules. But um, as a grandparent who would have been pressed into service, not that I mind spending more time with the little fellow, <laughs> it's great news, and I think it's it's great news for everyone. It absolutely is, Bill. It's nice to see people offer a compromise to go back to bargaining, to get a deal, and let the kids go back to their classrooms. Well, it sure is. And as David said, uh, uh, many of our CARP members uh, uh, would have uh, were pressed into service when the strike happened and uh, are going to be very pleased that things are returning to somewhat normal. Of course, the problem continues to be, what do we do over the next few weeks? Will the negotiations continue? Do we have to pre- prepare for perhaps grandparents uh, stepping in mm-hmm. again? Does this mean you can't plan uh, accordingly uh, your own uh, uh, schedule until the whole thing is settled? It's still very much up in the air in terms of concerns that uh, older uh, Ontarians have. And we will certainly get into that, and we want to hear from you as well if uh, the strike, which will be over by day's end, or at least it will be put on hold <laughs> if it was affecting you in some way. And to Bill's point, uh, you know, until there is actually a negotiated settlement, do you feel like your personal schedule is up in the air, especially if you are a grandparent and want to help out your kids and grandkids? 416-360-0740 or one 866 6744740 Peter Mugrich welcome back Thanks Jane And your reaction to this breaking news Well you know it's it's much better for the kids to be in in school physically rather than learning through Zoom which um you know my son <clears throat> when he was in high school really struggled during those two years and you know you lose a lot of the experience and a lot of the fun and also it's difficult to learn uh you know and so even if if it was it wasn't going to be a longer one even a week or, or so um you know it, it's good that it's over um 
it's a shame that it had to come to that. Why why these negotiations always have to be posturing for the first few days and then they get down to business. But I guess that's the way it is. And uh, all's well that ends well. All right, let's go to the phones. Our Zoomer radio listeners want to get in on reacting to the breaking news. And if you're just joining us, it was earlier this morning that Premier Ford offered to rescind the bill, which is which imposed a deal on the education workers and banned their right to strike. And just a few minutes ago, we heard from Laura Walton, who represents the education workers, that they will give up their strike uh, starting tomorrow and will get back to bargaining. Let's Let's go to Ron in Guelph. Hey, Ron, what do you have to say about that? Well, um, I'm reading a story. I'm looking at it right now from the yesterday's Toronto Sun from Brian Lilly, and it says, QP, check your math. Now, they've been talking about that they're not paid enough, but um, I'm hoping that everybody realizes that educational assistance and a lot of the custodians, this is strictly a part-time job. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely true. It's uh, for a lot of the workers, it is 42 weeks a year and based on a 35 hour week. So they're making $26, $27 an hour, but they don't have full time employment. Well, here's the other question, and I don't have an answer to this. Uh, maybe Libby or somebody can find out. I know that I'm driving a school bus, it's a part time job, and I get, uh, I'm allowed to collect unemployment insurance at Christmas time, March. And in the summer, if this is a part-time job for these people, are they eligible to collect unemployment insurance when they're not actually getting paid by the uh, board? I think that they are, Ron. I think uh, it's the same scenario as you have, that when they have that eight or ten week break in the summer, that they can go on EI for some of that. I don't know if it's the entire eight weeks, but uh, I think that's how it works. Well, I mean, yeah, but they're not. When they're saying, well, we're not, we're only making... Thirty-nine or forty thousand dollars a year. Uh, yeah, but they can also collect uh, unemployment insurance. I mean, pays. It's not an awful lot, but um, it's the same thing. I can say I make this much money a year, but that doesn't include. Um, that's just what my bus company pays me, and then the um, government, the uh, EI, is on top of that. So, I mean, let's talk about apples and apples instead of apples and oranges. Um, okay. yep. In terms of what they're actually paid, I mean. I take your Brian point. Lilly comes out and he says they're actually getting paid um, $26 an hour for the work that they're actually doing. For the doing. work that they're doing. Yep. Brian is right. Yep. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate your call. And uh, the phone lines are open here if you want to comment on uh, the compromise reached so far between the Ford PCs at Queen's Park and the education workers represented by QP. 416-360-0740 or one 740 David, interesting this morning that when Doug Ford was offering his massive olive branch, as he called it, he talked about how he heard from a grandfather last night whose four grandkids were dropped off because he needs to look after them because his, his son and daughter or son and daughter-in-law have to go back to work. So interesting. Right. This really is a big dynamic. Well, it's a, it's a big dynamic um, year round. I mean, it's highlighted now because of the strike, but um, we could do many shows on the whole role of grandparents, <clears throat> excuse me, grandparents in helping take care of their grandchildren and um, uh, the degree to which they are relied upon uh, to do that and some of the functions that they're doing. And then we've talked you know, even intergenerational financial support that sometimes comes with it. So once you open that topic, uh, get ready for a host of data and information to come pouring in, I'm afraid. Bill, do you want to comment on that? The grandparent uh, syndrome scenario, caregiving <laughs> scenario? <laughs> it's not well, a, it's, not it's a syndrome per se, but it, it is becoming part of our society, right? Where you have multi-generations working together to take care of the kids. Well, it, it is, and it's becoming a, an expectation. It's becoming a, a norm where, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and back uh, very much uh, to the attitude uh, years ago that uh, grandparents were just expected to be part of the family and look after, uh, and look after the, the grandkids. But now that, that uh, older Ontarians are working longer, they're staying at work, it, it, it really is a, 
a conundrum for a lot of people because they're continuing to work as older citizens and then expecting to offer uh, care to their grandchildren. So who gives up? Who who stays home from work? Is it the pair? Is it the parent? Is it the grandparent? Is it another uh, uh, relative? It's a very complicated uh, situation, and the repercussions from this kind of uh, work stoppage or, or school stoppage right. uh, hits many more people than the, than just the, the uh, employee, the parent, and the child. That is an excellent question, which we'll put to you, the Zoomer radio listener, as well. Are you in that situation where you are uh, part of a multi-generational family taking care of the younger kids, uh, whether you decided to stay home uh, from your job so that your kids could continue working, or if it just worked out that you had retired and you are now available? What is that caregiver situation like? 416-360-0740 or one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Pat in Toronto, welcome back to Fight Back. Uh, your thoughts? Well, hopefully they're going to go to binding arbitration. I mean, that's the provision that's been in our industrial relations for probably fifty years. Uh, government often doesn't like it because sometimes the awards are higher than government wants to give. Uh, interesting. I took a look at Mr. Lecce's income and how much it's gone up. And you must you must admit, sometimes the people at the bottom are the ones who are suffering. And my last point, which I have made many times, our problem, which ties in with the financing of people in retirement and the fact that we're all living a lot longer, is how are we financing people's longevity, in other words, the, in the seniors' homes. And Kathleen Wynne had a suggestion with regard to increasing CPP, And I think it is so, so, so important. And I'm just hoping that government will do something with that because we're all living an extra 10, 15, Mm -hmm. 20 years over what used to be the rules. Absolutely. Pat, always good to hear from you. Let's go to Rob in Toronto. Go ahead, Rob. Thanks for taking my call, Jane. I just wanted to congratulate the Premier earlier this morning for um, uh, repealing the Bill 28. I think it was despicable in the first place. When this is all said and done, I certainly hope that he'll certainly call Minister Lecce in and get rid of him as well, because I don't think that Lecce um, has proven to this province he's, he's downplayed a lot of students, a lot of parents, and all of these unions across the province, um, they, he's let them all down. And the only reason why our schools are closed today is because Lecce put it to them. And that's wrong. Okay, Rob. Okay, I appreciate your opinion. I doubt that Lecce has gone rogue. He is probably following orders and talking points uh, that have been decided on behind the scenes with regard to uh, what the premier was feeling, his office. It's not like he's out there making this decision uh, on his own to implement this Bill 28, which, by the way, is now being repealed. And uh, if you're just joining us, it's the Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugrich, and Jane for Libby. Uh, Peter, what are your thoughts as they all go back to the bargaining table tomorrow and the strike is called off for now? Yeah, well, um, Bill 28, I, I think, was a red herring the whole time. It was never going to stand up under uh, a charter challenge. And um, I, I think he, you know, giving it up, is he's giving up nothing because it didn't really exist anyway. You know, so it was it was sort of a clever bargaining tactic by by the Ford government and makes them look like they're giving in whereas uh, they're not giving in at all and the the other thing too is um he's not going to fire Lecce because Lecce is a lightning rod for all the criticism and uh he sort of draws it off the the premier's Absolutely. office you know, like so um i i think he'd probably uh, give him a raise and keep him in there because yep. uh you know, he's uh, he's taking on a lot of the blame that would otherwise fall onto the premier's lap. Yeah, it's good cop, bad cop, right? I mean, the yeah. premier was clearly playing good cop this morning, saying, yeah, look, I'm a, yeah. I'm a reasonable guy. I'll add water to my wine. We can talk about <laughs> anything. I mean, he was being very folksy, yeah. which is exactly what he does so well. Yeah. Yeah. David, any uh, further thoughts before we well, change that's, topics? That's from, well, only, only to point out that... Um, uh, Lecce is only you know, the last of a long line of occupants of an untenable hot seat. 
Um, the Minister of Education is always the focus of the work stoppages, threats of strikes, strikes, giving the teachers union too much, not giving the teachers union enough. Um, it's not the most thankless portfolio uh, in the cabinet. And I would agree with Peter that you want a guy in there that maybe isn't the Teflon, but can can catch the flack and come back and give some articulate answers and and remain standing when all the when all the slugging has stopped. And I think uh, Lecce has filled that role. Hundred percent. Okay, let's change topics uh, and the results of a new survey, which say Canadian employers are concerned about employee burnout and high turnover amid the ongoing labor shortage. We've referenced it in our previous conversation how we have Canadians working well into the traditional retirement years. So this is an important issue for Zoomers, Bill. It is an important uh, issue because. Uh, uh, people are working into their retirement uh, year or their so-called retirement years. Or years. Remember the it's uh, the sixty-five number is a fictitious uh, number that was created for reasons other than a logical time for people to stop uh, working, and it was created so many years ago. It doesn't apply now. The trouble is many of our rules, regulations, uh, of funding, federal support all use that fictitious sixty-five as the age that these things are supposed to kick in. Of course, they don't and they can't. Uh, uh, people are living longer. They need more money. They have to keep uh, working to uh, uh, support them, uh, support themselves. So for our generation, uh, all the issues that face younger workers in terms of, uh, of burnout face older workers too. And, and sometimes uh, uh, there, there seems to be an expectation that older workers coming back will fill that uh, need and fill those gaps. And they, they certainly can, but then they, they're they under the same kind of duress. So it's, it's a very complicated uh, uh, situation that uh, nobody's really got a handle on yet. Well, before I go over to David Kravitz, and this is certainly David's expertise, but Bill, what do you do about employee burnout, whether you're 65 plus or 65 and under? Well, uh, you know, one of the things we, we know, and I go back to uh, part of my checker career when I was in the HR business, and that is we know that most people leave jobs or burn out, not because of the job itself, uh, but because of their supervisor, their boss. And we have to do a better job making sure that uh, supervisors are trained to handle employees properly uh, so they're not uh, burning out. And this doesn't always uh, this doesn't always happen. Often we uh, promote people to supervisor uh, or to a boss who are who have no training, who aren't mm. ready to do it. And human human uh, uh, human resources have to take a hand in trying to make sure that uh, uh, the conditions are not so right for people burning out. Yeah, so employees feel heard, and not only heard, but that there's a solution applied to their individual problem. David, you write about this all the time, so looking forward to your comments here on this as well. Well, well I think we're entering a new uh, environment, which is almost a perfect storm for this problem, because on the one hand, as Bill correctly points out, you have people living longer and therefore needing to be earning longer and therefore wanting to be working longer because that also promotes longevity and youthfulness and health and engagement. Uh, at the same time, we have the effects of COVID and we are only now just beginning in a very embryonic form to understand the devastation caused by the lockdowns and by the way we responded to that uh, problem and whether we did the right thing or not, we're seeing it. We were talking about schools a moment ago. Um, certain kids of a certain age and grade might be years before they recover what they lost for being locked down and at home and learning on Zoom for two years. This was a catastrophe for everybody. And uh, so you're compounding burnout with how do we get back to normal from COVID? And I think it's going to require a tremendous amount of patience. I don't think uh, easy, well-defined answers are just going to, you know, drop from the sky. Mm -hmm. Employees can certainly keep pitching in and pitching in, but at a certain point, uh, something has to give. Uh, Peter Mugridge, your yeah. thoughts? Yeah. Um, curiously, though, um, you know, from my own experience and, and from, you know, anecdotal experience of those I've spoken to, it's, it's sort of the older generation of workers who are less prone 
to burnout. They might be bored of their job because they've been doing it over and over again, but they're they're sort of um, you know they grew up in a time where toxic work workplaces were just a matter of course, and and you didn't you had no no room to complain at all, and you just sort of yeah you just grinned and bared it, mm-hmm. and um, and so 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 the older generation of workers are, are I find are the ones who aren't burnt out. They're they're the ones who are uniquely equipped to deal with with the stresses of the job and the you know uh, you know the, the the COVID situation that David talked about. And the, um, you, you know, you know, the, the sort of, uh, lack of support from HR that you spoke about. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, from, from my own experience, the, the older workers I work with, I, I'm, you know, they, they're good to go. You know, it's, it's the younger workers who, who are having the issues. And, and that, that's a curious, uh, development in this whole, uh, crazy times. Right. Yeah. I know when I think about some of the newsrooms that I've worked in yeah, over absolutely. the previous decades, it was like, yeah. you can't handle the stress. Get out. Right. right exactly. <laughs> that was, was how, that's how they dealt with employee burnout. Yeah. Yeah, there was no toxic didn't even exist, right? No, were, you know, and and uh, certainly you had no recourse. You know? no. Uh, anybody else with a final thought on this bill before we move along? Well, just to say that you know, we one of the things that research has shown us is that younger employees, because of the way they've been up, been brought up through the school system, uh, are hardwired differently than uh, older workers. So older workers are content with say, "This is your job." Uh, go do it, get it done. Uh, younger workers need constant reinforcement. They need uh, an older worker who doesn't want somebody looking over their shoulder. A younger worker often does. So one of the things we have to learn to do is manage younger workers differently than we did the workers that Peter's talking about. Right. And I think it's a good thing, by the way. <laughs> I can, I can, I look bad. It's just fact. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and right. and I don't, yeah. I don't look back yeah. on those years in those toxic newsrooms with any kind of of uh, romance or, you know, uh, rose-colored glasses. I mean, those those were toxic days, and that's not the way workplaces should be 100%. All right, let's talk about time running out uh, with the Zoomer Squad, but let's talk about the federal economic statement delivered by Finance Minister Christian Freeland this past Thursday. Uh, Bill, back to you again. You informed us soon after uh, in the newsroom here at Zoomer Radio and Classical FM that very, very little was offered for older Canadians. Can you give us just a synopsis? Yeah, ab- absolutely. There was there was there was basically nothing new in it uh, uh, very much at, at all. It didn't meet any of the requests that CARP had made uh, over the years, and 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 last fall a year ago, we were talking about it. Uh, no increase in the old age security for people sixty five to to uh, seventy four. Uh, no uh, no real increases in dollars. And once again, all the uh, uh, focus seemed to be on other parts of the uh, economy. But, you know, the other thing to, uh, that we remember is it's an it's an update. It's not a budget. Now is the time to look at what they're doing now and start to put the pressure on for changes next March when the new budget comes down. Uh, David, can you expand on some of what uh, we should see followed through on by the Trudeau Liberals? I wish I could. Um <laughs> I think these are masters at optics, at rearranging the pieces to make the uh, jigsaw puzzle look new and different. Uh, I think there's no real. I think there's there's no real uh, new ideas in here, and I think that they are trying to shore up a credibility crisis that, by the way, affects all governments. Certainly in the Western world, not just a question of liberal versus conservative, and that is the experts got it wrong, the central banks got it wrong. They were wrong about inflation. They were wrong about interest rates. They were wrong about their timing. They were wrong about the forecast. Even the good news forecast is different than what they forecast earlier. So they're all facing a crisis of confidence by the public in do they know what they're doing? And I think all we can expect going forward is they're going to continue to try to put the best face on um, you know, some tinkering, but I don't see any uh, any sign whatsoever of uh, any dramatic new strategies uh, coming out of them. Sorry to be negative on it, but I think it's just optics as usual by a team that uh, believes in optics. No, that's fine. Uh, I'd prefer realistic than, uh, b- than unnecessarily <laughs> <Sorry>. positive. <laughs> I call them as I see them. <laughs> Absolutely. Peter Mugridge, final word to you. Yeah, um, you know, Freeland did sort of... Uh, 
enigmatically say um, the government is keeping its powder dry. So I assume, I mean, that that leads me to believe that there's, um, you know, uh, stronger measures to come when when the actual budget is announced and that uh, they're waiting to see how, you know, the financial situation develops, how the housing market goes, how, you know, whether we we go into a recession or not. So, um, you know, what were we to expect from this? Not much, and we didn't get anything. Yeah. Okay, we'll leave it there for this week. Zoomer Squad, thank you so much for your time, as always. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Bye, everyone. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy and Chief Operating Officer at CARP. It's Jane for Libby. This is Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up next, Doug Ford reverses a promise to keep his hands off the green belt. What are the revised plans and what do you think of this move? Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown. Libby is away. Great for me, as always, to be here with you. Well, I want to take you back to the provincial election campaign of this past spring when Doug Ford was campaigning for re-election as Ontario's premier and said this. Unequivocally, we won't touch the greenbelt. Uh, unlike other governments that so don't listen to people, I've heard it loud and clear. People don't want me touching the greenbelt. We won't touch the green belt. Okay, that's fairly clear. But this past Friday, Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark announced that the government is opening up 7,400 acres of the protected green belt lands for new housing so developers can build 50,000 homes on that land. Clark also revealed that 9,400 acres in different areas would be added to the green belt, in effect, making the green belt 2,000 acres larger. This morning, Premier Doug Ford was asked why he's going back on his promise, and he explained that we have a housing crisis that we didn't have four years ago because of the new immigrants who are arriving. And out of the 500,000 people showing up to Canada, we know, even though we're 40% of, or close to 40% of the population, 60% of those new Canadians, 300,000, are going to show up to Toronto and the GTA in the greater Ontario area. Where are we going to put 300,000 people a year? Almost a million people in three years because of the inaction of previous governments that didn't want to take the bold steps to get housing built. We are going to make sure we get housing built. Do you buy that explanation? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We will put that same question to our panel of experts. Mike Schreiner is leader of the Green Party of Ontario. Gideon Foreman is a climate change and transportation policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation. And Tim Gray is executive director of Environmental Defense. Gentlemen, thank Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Mike Schreiner, is it okay to take away 7,400 acres if you're adding 9,400 acres elsewhere? Well, Jane, this is completely outrageous that the Premier would break his promise not to touch the Greenbelt. I mean, the Greenbelt is there to protect the farmland that feeds us, to ensure that the green space and wetlands we need to protect us from extreme weather events such as flooding. Uh, and just also the places we love to visit and spend time with our families. And so this so-called land swap uh, isn't what it's cut out, what the premier says it is. I mean, essentially what the premier is saying, hey, you know what, we're going to protect some urban river valleys, something that absolutely should be protected. Matter of fact, I've been arguing the Greenbelt should be expanded to protect those river valleys. But people aren't going to build housing there anyway. And so, so that is just a red herring argument. The bottom line is, is the premier is opening the Greenbelt up for development, and he doesn't need to because we have sufficient land available already open for development. 350 square kilometers of Greenfield development 
um, is already approved, uh, and we should be developing on that land not the Greenbelt. Okay, and we'll get back to that land in just a moment, but I do want to get initial impressions first. Uh, Gideon Foreman, go ahead. Oh, yeah, it's a disaster. I mean, uh, the whole idea of a Greenbelt is to afford permanent protection to sensitive lands, forests, wetlands, agricultural areas, and now that's being destroyed. I mean, it was supposed to be permanent, and clearly the protection isn't permanent. And it's not just going back four years when that promise was made. A year ago, I have the Toronto Star clippings that I dug up this morning. A year ago, Minister Clark said, our government will not consider any proposals to remove or develop any part of it. A year ago, he was saying that. So uh, they're flip-flopping, and it's a disaster for the people of Ontario. Tim Gray, your impression of the of the promises that are, the promise broke, broken. Yeah, it's a promise from the Premier, of course, which is important. People need to take that seriously and breaking it should have consequences. But it's also an undoing of the work of many governments over many generations, including conservative governments of um, Bill Davis and Mike Harris. You know, we have been trying to improve the planning system in Southern Ontario to better protect nature, protect our water, provide housing for a long time. This is like throwing a bomb into the middle of the entire planning system and then lying to the public that it's going to create houses that are affordable for people. None of those 300,000 people that are coming to the uh, Greater Golden Horseshoe are going to be buying more monster homes built on wetlands or farms uh, far from the city. They want to be living in downtown Hamilton. They want to live in downtown Waterloo. They want to live in downtown Toronto, places where they can walk, um, where they can take public transit. And they want to be able to do so in a way that's affordable for them. And this government had an opportunity to change the rules to allow more building inside of the cities. City of Hamilton wanted that. City of Waterloo has been pursuing that. Halton wanted that. Toronto wants to do that. And he didn't give them those tools. Mm. Instead, he's opening vast areas of the green belt to uh, single-family home development that will do nothing for affordability, destroys farms, and destroys nature. Uh, Tim, just to follow up on that, how do we know what size of homes these are going to be, these 50,000 homes? I think from experience. I think any of uh, your listeners who know this area and you go out to Richmond Hill, Vaughan, et cetera, and look at the homes that are being built on the fringes and on these uh, forested lands, I mean, these are massive homes. The average size is over 3,000 square feet now. Some of them are up to eight and 10,000 square feet. These are not homes for recent immigrants. They're no. deeply unaffordable. Yeah, if that is the case, those are not the homes that immigrants will be able to afford. Absolutely. Uh, let's take a step back, go over to Green Party leader Mike Schreiner, and talk about the Green Belt as it is now. Educate us, Mike, on uh, the land that we're talking about. Well, you know, as um, Tim uh, suggested, uh, you know, the protection of these lands started uh, with conservative governments, Bill Davis in particular, with the Niagara Escarpment, and had been built over time of consecutive conservative and liberal and NDP governments. And the premier is taking a wrecking ball to it. And this is the farmland that feeds us. Right now, we're losing 319 acres of farmland every day in Ontario, about the equivalent of the size the city of Toronto, and only 0.5% of our land here in Ontario is prime farmland. We have to protect that farmland. I mean, geez, you're looking at food prices going up uh, because of conflicts outside of and, and climate disasters happening around the world. If there was ever a time that we absolutely have to protect farmland, now's the time. The importance of protecting wetlands and sensitive ecosystems is vital to protecting us from flooding, especially, which is one of the biggest climate risks we face in Ontario. And quite frankly, you know, a lot of these lands are, are people land that people love to spend time in with their families. And, and all of that is important, and all of it is under threat by the decision that the Premier made to break his promise. Okay, and, and can you give us a geographic snapshot of, of the Green Belt? Like, where is it in terms of where does it extend north, south, east, west? Well, you know, in the, in the east, it goes all the way past, uh, like, Durham region, Ajax Pickering, uh, wraps all across the northern part of the GTA, and wraps all the way down to Niagara, and then follows the Niagara Escarpment all the way up to the Bruce Peninsula. So it's it's a vast, um, you know, acreage of land. Uh, and where the premier is targeting are parts in the GTHA um, that are vitally important land to grow food and vitally important land 
to protect us from extreme weather events. Okay, great explanation. I can I can picture it. Um, let's go over to Gideon Foreman now. Uh, so, it, is it fair to say that this is a one for one swap? I know we've touched on that at the beginning, but taking away seventy four hundred acres, but adding ninety four hundred acres elsewhere, does that compute at all? No, it doesn't. I mean, you know, it, you can't just take a piece out here and and uh, and try to plug in somewhere else. You're going to have what. Some people are calling, you know, a Swiss cheese green belt. I mean, it's going to be all broken up. What, what, you, what you're looking for in a green belt is, is ecological integrity. You want a piece of land that is protected, where, where um, animals can migrate easily, where you're, we're protecting significant forests that are going to help us through the climate crisis. You can't just slice and dice it up. The, the, the terrifying thing is that they are taking pieces out of the green belt after they promised they would not. That is the danger. Uh, Tim Gray, would you like to add to that? And then we'll go to the phones because our listeners also want to get in on this conversation. Yeah, I think another thing that's important here is to realize that once something like this happens, uh, you know, if, if the government gets away with it, is that then the land speculators swoop in. So the land value on the green belt, the prices are held lower because it's valued as farmland. As soon as that land can become subdivisions, the prices go through the roof. That makes it impossible for land to be handed from generation to generation uh, in, in to farming. So we lose that land. Um, and in addition, it's really unfair to the developers who have played by the rules and only bought land that is outside of the green belt that can be developed. Um, they, these folks that have had influence um, on the provincial government now are in a situation where the land that they bought cheaply is now worth uh, many, many, many times more because it was in the green belt. Now it's not, and it won't be if this goes through. And it's very, very unfair but for all those who play by the rules. So are you saying, Tim, that developers have already bought this environmentally sensitive land at a lower price and are about Some to? It, yeah. De- yeah. That's actually what's happening. And making a windfall profit from it, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's go to the phones, 416-360-0740 or toll-free, 1-866-744-740. Your thoughts on the environmentally sensitive green belt, whether some of it should be used for housing, uh, and if not the green belt, where? And I know Mike Schreiner has an answer to that question. We'll get to him in just a moment. Um, Pat in Toronto, same Pat on the last topic. Uh, yes, and the, my concern, and I was a municipal councillor for eight years, yeah. is this government brought in a concept of municipal zoning orders, which allows the provincial government to override tribunals, what has been done by local municipalities, etc. It is very scary legislation, and this is just tying in with that. I- we're losing democracy, unfortunately, with this government. It's very sad. Pat, thank you again. Let's go to John in Peterborough. Your thoughts about the Green Belt? Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Go ahead. Yes, like I've, I've listened to some of the speakers there, and they're right. When it's gone, it's gone. Right? It's gone. Mm-hmm. Now, we saw the Rouge Valley years ago, years and years ago, where there was nothing in it. Now there's fish in it. Right? Mm-hmm. So, like I say, when it's gone, it's gone. But for me, Ford... Ford to me will be just like Mike Harris. After they make a mess of everything and they retire or they're voted out, you'll see them on the board of this, that, and the other. Because all the developers that I ever worked for, I can assure you, 90% of them had no interest in the environment, but they have an interest in is making money. Now, I didn't know that this land was already sold and bought for bought by these developers. How did that get by? Who was paying attention to that? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, John, thank you. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Daryl, your thoughts? Hi. Uh, frankly, I don't think he has any right to do this. This is not like a government surplus that he inherited from the previous government that is his to deal with. This land is, you know, other governments haven't touched it. We didn't save it. Not so that, you know, Doug Ford could come along when it was handy and farm it out to, you know, his development friends. 
Right. Okay. That seems to be the overwhelming sentiment today here on Fight Back. We do need to take a quick break, but I want to hear more from you, uh, your thoughts on the green belt, whether we should preserve it as is, add to it, where we can build uh, future homes for all the people arriving in Ontario. We'll speak with our panel of experts about that next. Again, the numbers to call 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744. 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We are talking about a broken promise by Premier Doug Ford uh, during the election campaign. He said that he won't build or allow any building on the green belt. And just this past Friday, we learned that, in fact, there is a plan to take away 7,400 acres of the protected green belt lands for new housing so developers can build 50,000 homes on that land. At the same time, 9,400 acres in different areas would be added to the green belt. Our guests on the topic today, Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario, Gideon Foreman, climate change and transportation policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation, Tim Executive Director of Environmental Defense. So, Mike Schreiner, if we don't, if the province does not build on these 7,400 acres of the Greenbelt, where can this housing go? Jane, it's a great question because we are in a housing crisis. There's no doubt about it. We need to build more homes and we need to build homes that people can afford. And quite frankly, the financially responsible way to build those homes is to build them close to where people work uh, and where they want to live. So it reduces their commuting costs, but it also helps municipalities save money because servicing sprawl is incredibly expensive for municipal budgets, which ultimately is paid for by property taxpayers. So there's one study that was done just in Mississauga alone. If you brought in gentle uh, density at missing middle housing and mid-rise apartments, you could accommodate 435,000 new residents just in Mississauga. Another study showed that if you allowed one duplex per hectare just in Toronto, so that's nothing radical at all, you could accommodate 45,000 residents with that alone. Mm. And we also know there's already 350 square kilometers of land that's been um, designated for development within existing urban boundaries. And so if we do a better job of doing gentle density with zoning regulations that would allow fourplexes and walk-up apartments in existing single-family neighborhood um, areas. If we zoned along major arterial roads and transit corridors for mid-rise apartments, we can accommodate this growth, do it in a way that is financially affordable for people, better for the environment from, from, a, from a climate change uh, and uh, protecting nature perspective, and, and accommodate this growth in a way that's affordable for families. And so, you know, the Ford government has chosen not to take the affordable and financially responsible approach. They've chosen the expensive, sprawl, destructive approach. So, Gideon, when people say, well, there's no more uh, room left in Toronto, no more room left in Hamilton, clearly from Mike Schreiner's comments, that's not the case. Yeah, it's just nonsense. I mean, take, uh, I'm in downtown Toronto, just take one example. So along the Bloor and Danforth subway line, um, the city wisely is building that gentle densification that Mike mentioned, and it works really well. It puts people downtown, it puts them right on a subway line so they don't have to have a car. They're near uh, parks. It's a walkable community. That's the kind of growth that we want. I mean, it's crazy. It's just ludicrous to to think that developers are going to build affordable housing on on the Greenbelt. They're going to build monster homes for people who already have an enormous amount of choice. They're going to build homes for wealthy people. And what we need in society today is affordable housing uh, near public transit. Let's do that along places like the Bloor Danforth subway line and not, for goodness sake, along uh, you know, forests and, and agricultural areas. It just beggars belief that anyone would even be considering doing this. Right, because Tim Gray, I mean, people who are coming to this country, to this province as immigrants, a lot of them don't have access to vehicles and uh, certainly want to be close to where the infrastructure is. So that is along the subway lines in Toronto. 
Absolutely. And, you know, the city of Waterloo for the last 20 years has really been trying to invest in having uh, new housing built within inside of the city. They just completed a new LRT line to allow people to move around the city more easily. And they've really stopped the city from expanding into all that valuable farmland. Well, on Friday, when the announcement came out to open the Greenbelt, they also made an announcement that the province is going to disallow um, the regional plans in all of these cities that don't want to expand their boundaries and wanted to build houses inside. So they're actually telling cities, you can't choose a future of building houses inside of your cities. We want you to sprawl. We want low-density sprawl on farmland that's expensive, that makes people car dependent. Um, it's a very clear message coming from the province. And everyone who knows uh, how our cities need to develop in a, in a, in a future that's affordable and climate safe uh, knows that this is a huge mistake. Let's go back to the phones. Marianne in Brantford, what would you like to add? I'm just so devastated to hear about the plans for the Green Belt. That he promised he would continue to protect that. I grew up on farmland where we all grew enough for ourselves and others in the community. It was beautiful farmland and orchards, which... Today it is all covered with subdivision and with industrial, the rest was industrial land, which there isn't much on really, but the water underground was totally ruined by chemicals from an industry. But it's not necessary. I totally agree with Mike Schreiner's plan for planning our cities differently and the housing and making it more easy for people to get to work. Okay, Marianne, uh, you are voicing the opinion of basically all of our callers today. Yes. Uh, yes. Let's see. So where will we get all our food from in the future if we're building houses all over the farmland? Okay, I'll put that question to Mike Schreiner. Where will we get our Ontario produce, Mike? Well, you know what? Uh, it's going to make us more uh, dependent on foreign supply chains. And, you know, we're seeing the inflation that's happening right now that, you know, if you talk to any ag economist is being uh, driven by COVID supply chains, conflict in the Ukraine and climate disasters that we're seeing in some of the major growing regions around the world. If there was ever a time that we needed to protect that farmland to feed Ontarians and quite frankly, uh, to feed people in other places, it's, it's right now. And so we cannot continue to lose 319 acres of farmland every day in Ontario. It's not sustainable, and it, it will make us food insecure. So that's why we have to be firm about pushing back against the four government's plans to pave over that farmland. And that's exactly my question for you. How do we push back? Uh, if you've hear, if you've heard the program, if you feel, uh, upset about what you're hearing about our environmentally sensitive land going to developers for monster homes, uh, what can we do, Mike? Well, Gina, I would say, uh, get involved in one of the Stop the Sprawl movements. Uh, just Google Stop the Sprawl uh, in, in Ontario, and you'll see numerous Stop the Sprawl groups uh, all over the greater Toronto, Hamilton area. I was participated in a pop-up protest on uh, Sunday morning, yesterday morning in Hamilton, uh, because the government also announced that, hey, Hamilton, you said you wanted to develop within, in your, within your urban boundaries, and the province said, no, we're just going to overturn that decision and force you to sprawl. So people are rising up in the same way that people have spoken out and pushed back and forced uh, Doug Ford to backtrack on his decision to threaten people's charter rights when it comes to um, collective bargaining rights and freedom of assembly for the labor movement. Uh, People need to push back against the Ford government's decision to break its promise and open the Greenbelt for development. And citizens groups are organizing right now to do that. Well, evidence of that uh, today, there is uh, an olive branch that has been extended by Premier Ford uh, and CUPE responded right away by saying they'll call off the education workers strike tomorrow. So you're right. That was fairly quick reaction to a public outcry uh, against uh, that legislation. Simone and Parkdale, our final call, and then I'll get uh, last comments from our other guests. Go uh, ahead. Thank you. Um, I thought read an article in the National Post Saturday on the financial uh, section about all um, office buildings being used for uh, turned into apartment buildings, and I think that's a very good idea. I just don't know how many we have available. 
Okay, let's thank, uh, you. thank you. Thanks for your call. Uh, Gideon, uh, uh, on office buildings that are no longer being used for office buildings. Well, I mean, you know, you have to dis- discuss exactly where the office building is located. But in general, that's the right principle. I mean, if it's an office building downtown, if it's near public transit, if it's in a walkable community, a community where you can cycle, that's a good place to put people. We need to make it affordable so that people of less or more modest means can afford it. But that is the general principle. Let's keep our building within the current municipal boundaries and not eat up our farmland. And we can do that. The good news is we have lots of room in our cities uh, and our towns to do that within the current boundaries. And, and how important is Ontario's farmland to the global food supply? You know, I mean, that would, might be kind of interesting to know as well, Gideon. Well, I can tell you that some of the land we have in southern Ontario is among the very, very best land in Canada. So it's a crucial, crucial area for producing food. And increasingly, we're seeing the importance of that. People have been saying that, you know, with climate crisis, um, it, you know, there's nothing more valuable than this farmland. And, and it's wonderful farmland. Think of the of the tender fruit that we grow in, in the Niagara region, for example, those peaches and plums and grapes. It's crucially important. So the idea, again, it's just, it just uh, unfathomable. And the other thing I would just add by way of final comment is, you know, the Greenbelt is so popular. Ecos Research did polling in August that 75% of folks in, in suburban areas want to see more protection for the Greenbelt. Uh, and it's not surprising. Tim Gray of Environmental Defense, your final comments. I think people really need to realize that this is a broad-scale attack on livability, uh, affordability, and the ecological quality of Southern Ontario. And this is a moment that everyone needs to gather and fight back. We have to stop the Ford government from moving forward to, to do this. Uh, it's really, really important we all work together on it. A very informative conversation. I thank you all for your time today. Thank, thank you, you so much, Tim Gray, Executive Director of Environmental Defense. Gideon Foreman, Climate Change and Transportation Policy Analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation. And Mike Schreiner, Leader of the Green Party of Ontario. Jane for Libby and uh, Angus Gillespie has the news coming up next. If you're just tuning in, there is some good news on the governing Ford PCs versus the education workers. Uh, we were talking about it earlier in the show. And tomorrow you will want to tune in, especially tomorrow, for the Recovering Politicians panel. One of our panelists, uh, Charles Souza, may not be a recovering politician for much longer as he has decided to run in a federal by-election for the Liberal Party in Mississauga Lakeshore. So we will look forward to his comments on that. And after the news, the number one's at one here on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.